Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. There's one word that gets thrown around a lot these days, particularly in the weird summer of 2020. That word, of course, is fascism. Uh, We've had a number of people on our show claiming that Trump or Putin or Erdogan is a fascist. Uh, Federico Finkelstein from the New School in New York comes to mind particularly. And I thought today, given the way in which fascism is used and perhaps abused, we should have an expert, a real expert on fascism. After all, Orwell, very famously in his politics in the English language, wrote that the word fascism has now no meaning except insofar as it signifies something not desirable. Or Orwell was, of course, always very good on the English language and how we define our politics. And indeed, his theory of politics was very much rooted in language. Uh, Victoria de Grazia is a very distinguished Columbia University historian. Uh, She's also lucky enough at the moment to be based in Tuscany, or at least talking to us from her retreat in Tuscany. She is the author of a a wonderfully rich, fascinating and relevant new book, The Perfect Fascism, the perfect, not fascism, The Perfect Fascist, a story of love, power and morality in Mussolini's Italy, which is a a narrative about uh, Attilio Terruzzo, one of Mussolini's generals, in in which she kind of weaves into a broader history and analysis of Mussolini's Italy. Um, Victoria, to kick us off here, uh, I'm going to be a history professor with my history professor guest. Uh, Tell me what fascism means as a word. Let's, Let's get beyond Orwell here. Take it beyond Orwell, I would tend to side with him to the degree that we use the word fascist and fascism very loosely in the United States. And I think in the United States, particularly so, because we always regarded ourselves as so distant from it. In other words, we were like the antithesis of fascism. We beat the fascists in World War II. We were all anti-fascist coming out of the New Deal. Um, You know, even Hollywood creates this black and white image. Uh, Reagan takes it a step further and brings in the Germans. So we were fighting against the fascists and and the Soviets, it seems. So the word is very, very loosely used. And myself, I, you know, we used to call people fascists all the time. My father was a fascist because he supported the war in Vietnam. I, but I found now to use it for our political figures uh, anywhere in the world, in the contemporary world, means that we don't understand what fascism uh, did so successfully in the interwar period. And so I think we underrate how uh, the enormity of fascism, how remarkably, it, remarkably became a model 
a global model by the late 1930s. Uh, and if there hadn't been uh, the war making and the capacity as a result of the war to create this enormous coalition of uh, not the free world, but the Soviet Union, <laughs> Great Britain, a troglodyte empire, and the United States, but the Catholic Church also moving from uh, being uh, you know, human rights for Christians only, human rights for everybody. If there hadn't been this enormous transformation, uh, it would have been very difficult to, to combat fascism. So uh, I'm not here indeed saying what fascism was, because I think it's actually very many things. And to start dicing and splicing to say what it was takes away from the fact there was a converging of all kinds of very different movements, like there are today, very different kinds of movements. But uh, Victoria, you're, let's, let, let's do some etymological digging for a moment. The word mm-hmm. itself, where did it come from? Who invented it? The word was invented in the 1890s by um, people like my grandfather, who was a part of the Fascio Siciliano. It was populist, left-wing movements of peasants uh, against the elites. And they called them the revolutionary fasci. And the idea was a fasci was the Roman bundle um, of wheat, uh, which suggested a kind of togetherness. And the Romans used it to indicate the people's sovereignty. They would march around with fascian lictors to show uh, that it was the people who were sovereign, e- even under, under the emperors. And this word wasn't used at all. And then it beca- it appears in the in when we get movements of protests in, in late 19th century Italy. And then Mussolini and others pick it up to find to describe breakaway movements during World War One, nationalist movements. They call them fascio, revolutionary fascio. And so he's the one that brings it to become a, a movement which he says is reactionary and revolutionary. So and, Mo- and Mussolini began life uh, intellectually or ideologically at least as as a, as a leftist right absolutely he was a, the best and the brightest of the you know uh unruly corrupt in his way unscrupulous let's say not rather than corrupt on the left a brilliant journalist who then says you know nationalism is the way forward that's uh, what the socialists don't get with their internationalism and he makes that big move to um, well, he doesn't know quite where he's going to move at first, but very quickly he sees that the way forces are after uh, World War One are uh, people are disbanded, they're disoriented, and he says he's an opportunist. He says, "I'm I'm a radical, I'm a revolutionary, I'm a reactionary." Uh, and isn't the yeah. core tension? Hasn't the core tension in fascism always been, and, and this perhaps was captured in Mussolini, between on the one hand a nostalgia for the purity of antiquity, and on the other hand, uh, a, a cult of modernity, a cult of technology, of, of the new? Um, I think Mussolini was a, you know, a, a, a brilliant intuitions. I don't think that there was a big tension in him over those things. I think he would welcome in those who were antiquarians and look back. He welcomed in those who were modern. He was a very modern man. Nothing not modern about that man. Uh, he, including his nostalgia for the past, I would assume, right. and his modernity. I, mean, I, I cannot under, un, not overrate the nostalgia for the past part. That, all, you know, most movements have some, let's look back to the better days. Uh, what's remarkable, I think, in Mussolini is that they could actually think of Rome as the, 
the present. So I think that's interesting, this kind of collapsing of time so that you could begin to think that you're the new Roman Empire without even thinking of yourselves as being antiquarian. It's part of the present. It's like constitutionalists in the United States Supreme Court saying, hey, the Constitution is a living document or that uh, therefore it should be the law. It's, it, I don't find it that different from that kind of backward thinking where everything's sort of brought to the present. Um, Victoria, you you note, and this is, I think, really important, that the, the, the word itself was invented, fascism, uh, in the 1890s by people like your grandfather, idealistic leftists. But would it be fair to say that the key historical event in making sense of fascism was the catastrophe of the First World War? The war unhinged everybody. Uh, it particularly unhinged Italy because Italians had put a huge bunch into it. It um, created lots of men who were desperate to find a reason for having done the war, who wanted the hierarchy of command when they came home, you know, to get order back, uh, and who were open to new kinds of movements. Some chose the left, some chose Catholicism, uh, no question about it, a lot, especially officers saw fascism as offering this populist possibility that they would be recognized, uh, go against the left and provide a new order. So fascism really does come out of the war. And I think that's what makes it so different from today. You know, in other words, it's milita right. militarism is terribly important dimension, historic fascism. And uh, that's where we may bring in the subject of your book, The Perfect Fascist, uh, Attilio Teruzzi. Uh, tell me a little bit about him. Why, what drew you to writing this very uh, substantial book? You've spent, I'm guessing, several years researching and thinking about this guy. What's so interesting about him? Well, that he married a, a brilliant young Jewish American woman, uh, and uh, I was brought the papers by her relatives, and they said, "Why did you know, dear you know, cousin Liliana?" Liliana Weinman, originally from New York City, right? Yeah. Why did this young woman, reformed Jew, marry uh, Hunter Hunter High School uh, opera career? Why did she marry this old fascist? And you know, I looked at the pictures. Saw Mussolini was the best man, and the American ambassador, and Julia Serafine, who was the director of this. Uh, Metropolitan Opera at the time, and I said, yeah, why did she marry him? But why did this man with all his decorations, his black shirt during the civil marriage, marry her? And it opened up that this guy had been 20 years the good soldier, the perfect soldier, and then 20 years from what I could tell looking at it, the perfect fascist, trying to be do his best to be a good fascist, Mussolini's friend and ally always being promoted. So we started from there. And then, you know, what comes after, in some ways, is he an interesting man or not an interesting man? It seemed a very important way to humanize fascism in a weird way in order to help us understand why right. somebody becomes so loyal and what does that kind of loyalty mean? So, and uh, only in Italy could a 
prominent fascist general, not only be married once, but twice to Jewish women. Um, let's briefly deal with the issue of anti-Semitism and fascism. Mm. I've always wondered, had Hitler been assassinated and the Nazis not come to power in Germany, um, and, and, and Mussolini would have had a, a normal, a relatively normal political career and perhaps died in office, would we even associate anti-Semitism with fascism. I remember that movie and book, The Garden of the Finzi Continuous, which talks about anti-Semitism. But originally, the, the Italian fascists weren't particularly interested in Jews, were they, one way or the other? Well, there you know, good work, lots of Jews in the fascist movement because they were officers in the war. There were a lot of Italian generals who were Jewish. Mussolini was pretty much always had an anti-Semitic uh, uh, streak, even though his mistress uh, and two of them apparently were Jewish, very cosmopolitan, brilliant women, one Italian, one um, Russian communist. But anti-Semitism was very widespread and right-wing movements in Europe picked it up, whether they went as far as Hitler or not, it was definitely part of the way right-wing movements organized themselves. That is, they were thinking about finance capital. They decided that the reason that England was such a powerful empire was because they had Jews in the Rothschilds. That was the kind of language that was coming out already in World War I. So, you know, anti-Semitism is one thing, it would have been there. Anti-Semitic laws, that's another question. Well, that's the 1930s. So it takes, you know, fascism in Italy lasts a long time. And in the 20s, you know, nowhere were there anti-Semitic laws. So we can't say, hey, Italy's great. Italy's own race laws, most historians now, they came out of Italy. Italy was very worried after the Ethiopian war about its people mixing uh, with racially different people. And you know, the uh, Italian anti-Semitic laws were developed brilliantly, juridically. Uh, so I, it, it's hard for me to say, you know, without Hitler, there would have been, Mussolini wouldn't have been anti-Semitic um, or without Hitler's Nuremberg laws, Italians wouldn't have made their 1938 race laws. It's Mussolini has statements saying, I wish I could kill all the Jews now. You can wave that there are only a few times he says that. Usually they're in his boudoir with his one of his his, his most important uh, lover in the 19, late 1930s. Uh, so we can't say from there that that meant the final solution. Anti-Semitism is very complicated. We know a lot about it now. Right. It was all over, and these right-wing movements picked up on it, and Hitler took it to the greatest extremes. Not in you know, the laws, but then especially during the war. I mean, if, if, would it be fair to say if, if there is an ideological legacy of fascism, mm -hmm. particularly M Mussolini's fascism, it's the ideal of totalitarianism, which um, Hannah Arendt in mm -hmm. particular in her wonderful mm -hmm. uh, trilogy mm -hmm. of books described as the, what you call the destruction of private life. So it's kind of ironic in a way that your book, The Perfect Fascist, this story of love, power, and morality in, in, in Mussolini's Italy, is in many ways a story of 
private life as a as an archaeologist of, of Mussolini you you dug up private life what was it like privately in in the Italy of the 1930s and early 40s it was all jerked around and messy <laughs> especially if you were part of the the, the hierarchy uh, you know smearing each other using innuendo using spies to pick up on their sex life, on the peccadilloes of their family and, and wives. Informers, you always misogynist, uh, were around and about. So it was you know, highly sexualized and highly uh, deformed. That's how what is that? Uh, and I, I don't mean to sound uh, anti-Italian. Uh, I don't mean to sound anti-Italian here because I'm a big admirer of, of, of all things Italian, but is that that different profoundly from regular Italian well, life before fascism? Uh, I'd say um, yeah, no and yes. And I think that's, that's a point I'm trying to make that, again, it's a misconstrual. And I think this is true of Nazi Germany, Soviet Union, fascist Italy, which Arendt would say, well, let's go easy. Maybe we should include Italy as a totalitarian place. Private life goes on in these places. And if you say it, it doesn't, it's a way in some ways of saying, hey, this is so abnormal. We in America, we in the late early 20, 21st century are never going to go that way or that place. That, those countries are different from us. And I don't think that that is... Um, politically right, but I think also in terms of scholarly work, it's not right either. Private life continues in those regimes. Uh, the, the problems aren't about the destruction of private life, they're about the enormous ballooning of the state and this huge inter-bureaucratic fighting and where the leader then begins to twist everything around, including people's private lives. What about the sexualized nature of fascism? Um, I, I was struck by that in the, the narrative in, of, of your book, um, and perhaps also by Mussolini's presentation to himself, to, to the Italian people and to the world, this kind of male ego, mm -hmm. uncontrolled and uncontrollable, being turned into a political movement and ideology. A political movement and also a huge political capital you know, maildom and coming out of, you know, a history that could go back to the Romans, if not earlier to some, you know, distant Aryan or Roman people. So it's a big capital uh, to, to push around. And it's kind of interesting that Hitler couldn't do that particular kind of, uh, he had that more avuncular <laughs> uncle capital, which in some is as much creepier uh, than that virile uh, father of the family, mm. lover. Uh, it had a, a lot of resonance, uh, that. Um, and he would play it in different ways. Sometimes he was a good part patriarch, very stern. You know, other times he was the, you know, the male lover. Uh, it's a big capital in, in political rule generally. <laughs> say you know in, in, in the big capital how how you play it <laughs> i can't resist this and i'm sure you have to deal with this question all the time in in your interviews about this book but um is there something uh trumpian about mussolini and fascist italy 
I, I've never believed the idea that there's anything about Trump which is in, in any sense akin to the Nazis and Hitler. But it, it does seem as if this, this excuse the pun, trumped up, uh, highly sexualized male figure uh, in America in 2020 is in some ways not dissimilar to his equivalent in Italy in the 1930s and his absurd family and his bombastic, ludicrous presentation of himself. Well, um, you know, Mussolini was a brilliant journalist, uh, a good father to his children. Well, Trump isn't a bad father. I mean, he probably bullies them, but at least acknowledges Trump is a, you know, a, a real estate speculator who continues the same methods in terms of his is you know running down the, the 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 value of the United States. So you know in the end he can uh, you know acquire huge huge power out of this kind of bankruptcy and you know some sort of then tr huge transformation that he will make in the wake of that uh, the bankruptcy of everything that exists now. I'm not sure why Trump gets compared to Mussolini. It seems to me a kind of a, a downgrading of Italy <laughs> and, uh, uh, and, uh, and of, of you know, 20 years of fascist politics, which was, which was, you know, was, was, was awful. Um, so I don't want to you know, compare, but I don't see the relationship between a Trump and and a Mussolini, but again, that probably comes back to my idea that historic fascism was of an epoch. Uh, Trump is much more comparable to Bolsonaro uh, and some of the other kleptocrats who have mm. come into power also in the post-Soviet uh, areas. Yeah, I mean, actually, the, 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 the historical figure he most reminds me of is Ceausescu in Romania. But this is a conversation about it's Italy a, and the perfect yeah, fascist. Yeah, yeah. Um, Victoria, you, you note in the book, and I'm quoting you, you say, firstly, you say fascists are made, not born, which I think is a very intriguing um, observation. And then you say fascist Italy was horrible, but full of heart. What do you mean by that? Well, horrible, but full of heart. That is, humans went around, continued making love, uh, having plans, having children, uh, thinking about what would be written on their gravestones. Uh, you know, were the kinds of all the, the, the conflicts that we associate with human existence lived to its extreme. Uh, you know, what's my fate? Uh, you know, what will be, be, be become of my loved ones? And I think that that's important to keep in mind so that we understand that we're talking about political worlds in which people are making choices and that we don't get into this Manichaean weirdness, Trump is horrible monster and X is good or Hitler you know, most extreme awfulness and XYZ is good because that kind of Manichaean way, which is very American, the good and the bad, the white hats and the black hats, doesn't, what it's not what politics should be about. And it doesn't help understand these, these movements. So I think that that was what I was trying to, you know, to get at. Let's not get abstract about a totalitarian society not having effective life. Is there something that we can learn from Mussolini's Italy in a, in a positive way that would make contemporary America a better place? 
fight fascism, historically, you needed a big popular front, a very wide front uh, based on lots of different kinds of political interests. And I think that's key that the United States needs, first of all, to understand the problem, the huge problem of capitalism, global capitalism, which permitted the United States to enter into this terrible political state. And then to think way ahead, not just to defeat Trump, but to come up with major projects, which he is addressing in his is awfulness in the worst way. So that, if you want, is the takeaway I get from studying fascism, uh, that uh, what's important is this sort of the big picture in the end, um, and that you need a very wide spectrum of understanding to, of, of understanding of political understanding in order to, and people to join together. Well, there you have it, a very a rich response to an incredibly rich, complicated book, The Perfect Fascist, The Story of Love, Power, and Morality in Mussolini's Italy, a, a narrative about a, a complicated general and his even more complicated uh, private life, begins with a perfect marriage and perhaps ends with a perfect death. Uh, Victoria, people should read your book. Anyone interested in the history of fascism, it's essential reading. Uh, you are, as I said at the beginning of this conversation, um, in Tuscany at the moment. You're based, though, in New York. What, what are you reading or what should people be reading in this strange summer of 2020? Well, I read two books. I mean, one is about by a man named Carlo Cipolla, and it's on the plague in Florence uh, in the in the 14th century. And I guess we're just so struck that the Florentines did the same things that we have doing, done now very rigorously, close all the houses down. And the most important thing there, aside from closing everybody in, was to make sure that the animals were fed. So they created this kind of social welfare state, which provided food to everybody, including the animals and the pastures. And in the other, um, it was rereading re in a different key, um, the, the Prince of Machiavelli, there's some it's a good, fun translation by Tim Parks, and the yeah, the Prince of Machiavelli. It's very misunderstood because it's really about governing. It's not. It's not about the tyrant. It's really about how to think about what governments should do. Bad ones and good ones. So that's what I've been thinking about. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week. And thanks so much for listening.